0: Uh, Welcome to all those of you who are gathered with us to worship our great God this morning. He is a great God and worthy of our adoration. Uh, Welcome also to those of you who may be following us uh, via the internet. internet. Welcome to wherever you happen to be. Glad you could join us that way. I invite you to turn in God's word to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. The beginning of what is famously called the Upper Room Discourse. This very intimate interaction between Jesus and his disciples. John 13, 1 through 30. Let's hear God's word together. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, John, was reclining at table at Jesus' side, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, "'Lord, who is it?' Jesus answered, "'It is he to whom I will give the morsel of bread when I have dipped it.'" So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, "'What you are are going to do, do quickly.'" Now, Now no one at the table knew why he had said this. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, "'Buy what we need for the feast.'" Or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you are incomparable and wonderful. Father, we rejoice in the fact that you are a giving God. You give us life and breath and every good thing. You've given us a savior, even your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you also, in your dealings with us, are characterized by boundless generosity and giving. You gave up the glory that you had with the Father to come into this world, becoming man like us. And throughout your life, you served others, you gave of yourself, and you gave of yourself supremely at the cross, where you yielded your life for ours, that we might be reconciled to God. Lord Jesus, we love you and we give thanks that you spent yourself for us. And as we contemplate your goodness and boundless generosity, we confess our own selfishness. So often, Lord Jesus, it is not about serving you or serving others. It's about doing what we want, pleasing ourselves. We confess our selfishness, putting our interests ahead of your interests and those around us. And Father, we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you would pardon us for our disobedience, for our sins, for our selfishness. And thank you that you do indeed pardon us for the sake of your Son. Thank you that you cleanse us of all our guilt, that we might stand holy, spotless, righteous before you. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be pleased this morning to take your word and teach us how we might walk in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ, how we might be servants at heart, how we might glorify you by thinking of others more and more. Use your word, Lord, to sanctify us and accomplish your good purposes, we ask. Amen. Uh, So every once in a while, when I've had a long, grueling day, and I've got to wake up early the next day, uh, my wife, Stephanie, will prepare the coffee the night before, prepare the coffee in advance. She'll take the filter, put in the filter and fill it up with you know, the appropriate amount of coffee, and then she'll pour out the water and get the coffee ready uh, for the morning so that when I ooze into the kitchen in the, in the morning, uh, not entirely coherent, I get my coffee just by pushing a button. That may not seem like a big deal, but if you wake up the way that I do and feel the way that I do in the morning, I f- I, let me just say I feel loved, I feel served, when all I have to do is push that button and out comes the life-giving uh, <laughs> coffee. Uh, Now, I I use this example because it's a reflection of my wife's love for me, but it's a reflection of of the kind of attitude that Jesus is commending in this passage. Uh, To be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ, means that you take thought for other people. You think about how you can enhance their life, and you inconvenience yourself for their good. Uh, You lay down your life that their life may be enhanced. And we see that Uh, humility, that self-denial in this act that Jesus Christ performs for his disciples. Uh, Though he is Lord and King and even the Son of God, he stoops down to wash the feet of his disciples. Uh, There is nothing like this in the ancient world that we are aware of. There's no, scholars tell us that there is no documented occurrence in the ancient world of someone who's really high and exalted stooping down to wash the feet of his subordinates. There's a unique humility that Jesus displays here. And so we're gonna reflect on this act of service that Jesus demonstrates here. Uh, we will note four things as we look at this passage. Three things, depending on how you count, we'll see. Um, first thing we'll see is Jesus' love for his people. Jesus' love for his people. Second, uh, we'll see that Jesus predicts Judas's betrayal. And third, uh, Jesus' foot washing is a symbol of cleansing and an example to follow. So point three has like subparts, hence the possibility of our saying there are four points. So Jesus' foot washing is a symbol of cleansing and an example to follow. So this section, this foot washing section, begins with an amazing statement about Jesus' love for his disciples and by extension us. We're told that the foot washing took place before the feast And then we're told, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The idea here is that Jesus loved his disciples, looked upon them with affection, cared for them throughout his ministry. And then he didn't stop caring for them as he stood here at the shadow of the cross. He went on loving them without interruption and without hiccup to the final moment of his life. Now, this phrase... Uh, that's used here, uh, love them to the end, is somewhat ambiguous. Uh, that phrase, to the end, can refer to the intensity of Jesus' love. The idea that he loved us and his disciples to the uttermost. This is the highest possible expression of love. He completely emptied himself for the good of his people. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that he loved them to the bitter end. He loved them throughout the course of his whole ministry, and he loved them all the way down to his final breath in this life. Now, I think that this ambiguity is an intended ambiguity. These two meanings, I think, are both intended by John. Both of these are true, I think both intended, and they capture two distinct facets of the love of our Lord Jesus. The, the first aspect of his love uh, is that... It is incomparable. It is great. Uh, he holds nothing back. There is nothing more that Jesus could have done for us than he actually did. At the cross, he rid himself of every conceivable good thing that through him we might receive all the blessings of God. There we see the highest expression of love conceivable. But also we see at the cross the persistence of the love of our lord jesus christ he loved them throughout and loved them to uh, even to the point of his dying breath Uh, there is no hiccup there is no pause there is no interruption in the love of jesus for his people it goes all the way to the end that's how he loves you that's how he loves me now human loves even the the best human loves can falter and fail can't they Love of a husband for his wife and the wife for her husband. Even marital love can fail. Love between friends or love between parents and children. There's one love that really can't fail. It endures, it persists, and that love is the love of Jesus for his people. That's how Jesus loves you. Uh, The the most comforting, consoling thing, perhaps, uh, when we're faced with the troubles of this life, is to know this simple truth. Jesus loves me. He loved me in the past and gave himself for me. He loves me now in the present, and he will go on loving me. When he looks at me, he looks upon me with love and affection. There's tremendous comfort in that fundamental truth. Indeed, the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter two, verse one, he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, and the comfort there is the comfort of Christ's love. Uh, To know that the Savior That the Son of God looks upon me, delights in me, and loves me is a massively encouraging thing. Uh, It soothes our weary and battered hearts when we know that Jesus loves us. It enables us to look at very imperfect circumstances in our lives and be content. It enables us to be content even when we don't get the things out of life that we might have liked out of life. Sometimes we don't get the marriages, perhaps, that we had hoped for. Uh, We don't get the careers that we might have wanted. There are various hopes and dreams that remain unrealized. But in in the midst of all of those losses and uh, lacks, we look at Jesus and we remember that he loves us and that's enough. It more than balances the scales for what we don't have. When our hearts are broken, when we are sorrowful, we are invited to go to the Savior who always and inescapably loves his people. Jesus loves us. Second thing we notice then is that there is a dark backdrop to this beautiful moment. There's a fly in the honey, if you like. Uh, And that is the sinister plot of Judas to betray Jesus. Verse 2. During the supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Judas was one of uh, Jesus' 12 disciples chosen by Jesus. He was in the inner circle. And we don't know precisely what caused Judas to dis, you know, to become disillusioned with Jesus and to decide to betray him. But something did. Judas resolved that he was going to b- betray his Lord. 30 uh, pieces of silver, he's going to betray his Lord. And that betrayal r- will result in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And it's astonishing that he he maintains his resolve to do this even in the face of Jesus' goodness in this passage. Because we have to remember... One of the individuals whose feet uh, is washed is Judas. Judas is sitting there with the other disciples, and Jesus stoops down, and he knows Judas is going to betray him, and nevertheless washes the feet of Judas, a- as, if, as though there, there's perhaps one last appeal, one act of love that says Judas, reconsider. But Judas hardens himself, resolves that he's going to betray the Savior. And we discover that this is not only Judas' decision, it is also a decision made under the influence of the devil, uh, when the devil had put it into his heart, and then later on, after Jesus gives him the morsel, of, gives to Judas the morsel of bread, we're told that Satan entered into uh, Judas. There has been a conflict between God's King, Jesus, and Satan throughout his earthly ministry. And We've seen that conflict as Jesus liberates uh, people under the demonic influence, and that conflict reaches its crescendo, its high point at this at this moment. This is Satan's. Final and climactic attack on God's king. And he uses Judas and his betrayal to accomplish that. So Judas is going to betray Jesus. But the crucial thing that's emphasized throughout this passage is the fact that Jesus knew that it was going to happen and, and told his disciples that, would, uh, uh, that that in fact would happen. Look at verse 11. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. He knew it. Uh, look at verses 18 and 19. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread and has lifted, uh, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So Jesus is saying, not only do I know this is going to happen, this is actually going to fulfill Scripture. God foretold the fact that this was going to happen. So why is it important for Jesus to communicate his impending betrayal? Verse 19 tells us. I am telling you this now before it takes place. Why? That when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. What Jesus is saying, he's telling them in advance that the betrayal is coming to protect their faith in him. What we often fail to realize is that the betrayal, crucifixion, and death of Jesus was massively unsettling for the disciples. They didn't have a category for God's king being betrayed and then crucified in shame and torture and misery. The crucifixion of Jesus was massively spiritually unsettling and disorienting for the disciples. This was going to be a spiritually traumatic moment, and Jesus knew it. So what is he doing? He's getting them ready. He's telling them, I'm going to let you know that this is going to happen, and the reason I'm telling you this is to protect you. You're going to need to know this to endure the ordeal that's about to happen. Well, up to this point, Jesus just tells them generally of the betrayal. In verses 21 through 30, though, he tells them specifically who would do it. He says, one of you will betray me. And who is that? So Peter signals to John, hey, ask him, who is this? And so John leans back and he says, who, who is it, Jesus? So Jesus says, the person I give this morsel of bread to, and he gives it to Judas and singles him out. Now, at that table, at the feast, it's only John and Jesus who knew that it was Judas. Everybody else didn't have a clue. They thought he had to go buy some provisions for the feast or something like that. They, didn't, they had no idea why Judas left, but John knew. And again, the reason that occurs is to protect John and the disciples for this betrayal, this They're going to feel like the ground is shaking underneath them. This is going to be like their whole world is turned upside down. Everything that they knew for certain is going to be called into question. This is going to be a massive spiritual danger for the disciples. And Jesus, being the good shepherd, wants to prepare his people. This is a motif in the uh, Upper Room Discourse, 13 through uh, 17. The, The concern that Jesus has for his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. He's not thinking mainly about himself. He's thinking about his people. So he's arming them with truth. And then we will see when we get to 17, he actually prays to the Father for them. And he prays that God would keep them in his name, that their faith wouldn't falter and fail at this moment. Luke also emphasizes this fact. In Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, 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 behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Uh, Satan demanded to have you, but I've prayed for you, Peter. Like, Peter's going to deny Jesus three times, as we'll see. But I prayed for you, and you're not going to fall away. And when you return, encourage your brothers. Now, we need to understand that what Jesus did for his original disciples, he does for us today. Uh, when we come into those moments of great darkness, when everything we thought we knew was suddenly called into question, and we're unsettled, and we're filled with doubts and dark thoughts, We need to understand Jesus is not just passively looking at us to see what will happen. He is drawing near and he is strengthening our faith through his truth, through the church, through the community of other believers. And he is strengthening us even through his high priestly intercession at the right hand of God. Do you know that God, even in his exalted state in heaven at the right hand of God, continues to pray for you, continues to pray that your faith may not falter and fail? There are some of you who are in a place like that right now, perhaps moment where the darkness engulfs you, you're not sure about anything, you're disoriented, your world's turned upside down, if that's you this morning, know that Jesus is right there with you. Not a passive spectator, but one who stands by your side, strengthening you to endure in the face of the ordeal. That's who Jesus is, and there's an invitation to all of us in a season of darkness like that to run to Jesus, knowing that he provides everything that we need to endure and press on, even in the darkness. So he's getting them ready for what's to come. Now this is all, as I say, the background to the foot washing. Uh, Jesus gets up and he washes the feet of his disciples. And this is, as we'll see, a symbol of the cleansing that we all need. So we have to picture the way they're sitting at this meal. There would have been a low table. There would have been these thin mats that they were uh, reclining on. They would have been resting on their arm. And their feet would have been radiating out away from the table. Uh, That's how they're positioned. And so Jesus, unexpectedly, the Son of God, the King, stands up from the table, picks up a towel and a basin with water, and he goes around to the disciples and their filthy feet, and he begins to scrub those feet clean now keep in mind in the ancient world that they didn't have nikes or tennis shoes they as a rule wore sandals uh, and there weren't a lot of paved streets there was dusty and dirty and so your feet would get quite dirty right there was there was a lot to clean There's part of the reason we don't have this custom is we don't our feet may not get that dirty uh, but jesus goes around the king goes around to these filthy feet and he just scrubs them clean And the disciples are stunned by this. This goes against all of their intuitions about what's appropriate. It's not appropriate for the Lord to do this. There's just a stunned silence. Except for Peter, who characteristically has something to say. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, you wash my feet? Like This is inappropriate. I should be washing your feet if anything. You shouldn't be washing my feet. And we understand it. I mean, We get it. Jesus, the master, God's king is going to do this. It's not right. Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Like you don't get the significance of this, Peter. But afterward, after my death, after my resurrection, you're going to see what this means. This will be clear to you. But Peter is obstinate, verse 8. You shall never wash my feet. Okay. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, wash doesn't refer literally to cleaning his feet. That's not what's going to make him clean. Uh, Jesus, as he often does in the Gospel of John, is speaking on two levels. He's talking about spiritual washing and cleansing. This is a feature of John's Gospel that you may have noticed as we work through it. People are thinking literally very often, and Jesus is speaking metaphorically or spiritually. So also here, he says, "If, if I don't wash you, Peter, if I don't cleanse you of your moral pollution and your guilt and your shame, you have no part with me. You don't have eternal life. You're not going to be with me. Oh, verse nine says Peter, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. If that's the case, well, don't stop with the feet. You know, get the head and the hands and everything. Again, there's a charming zeal that we see in, in Peter. If, if, that, if, if that's the way to get, you know, to be with you, then don't stop at the feet. Pour the bucket. You know, get the head and the hands and everything. No, no, says Jesus. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Okay, yeah, that's pretty straightforward at a literal level. You know, if you've taken a bath uh, and you go outside and you walk around and you get your feet dirty, you don't need to take another bath to get clean. You just need to wash your feet. Well, what does that mean spiritually, though? Metaphorically. Uh, the, the phrase, except for, your, for his feet, is especially difficult. But what Jesus is saying is that the one that he washes is really washed. So if Jesus cleanses you, you don't need another bath. When Jesus wipes away your guilt and your sin, you are clean and you will stay clean. All the guilt and shame accumulated over a lifetime, praise God, has been wiped away and you are pure. So then what does except for his feet mean? Well, I think uh, the idea here is that even though Jesus has made you decisively clean, there is still an ongoing need to confess sin and ask God for forgiveness. Uh, We see this in the Lord's Prayer, for example, where we are told daily to confess our sins to God, to confess our debts before the Lord and to uh, find his forgiveness. We need to be clear, when you sin, your relationship with God doesn't disappear. You still have a relationship with God. But there's an issue that needs to be resolved, just like in your marriage, right? If you uh, sin against your wife or your husband, the marriage doesn't disappear, it's still there. There's an issue that needs to be addressed. There needs to be an apology often. And so also here, we confess our sins to God, and then we rejoice in the forgiveness that he gives through Jesus. So confess your sins. That's what it means, it seems, to um, need your feet to be washed. Uh, so this, this foot washing that Jesus performs for his disciples symbolizes the ultimate cleansing and points to the ultimate cleansing that will be accomplished at the cross. Uh, We need to realize that from a biblical standpoint, those of us who don't have Jesus, who are rebels against God, who violate his commands, who disregard what he wants of us and do as we please, Scripture views us as morally polluted, corrupt, dirty, filthy. The stains go all the way down and try as we might, we can't make ourselves clean. No matter how many self-help books you read, No matter how much striving you exhibit to become a better person, none of it will finally wipe away the moral pollution and filth that characterizes you. And because of this filth, we can't enter into the holy and pure and spotless presence of God. If we are ever going to return to God, our Father in heaven, we need to be made clean. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one who does that. Through my death, through my crucifixion, I make dirty people clean. And I take away not just some of the pollution, but all of it. Those who trust in Jesus can can come before God, knowing that in his sight they aren't defiled, they aren't corrupt. Through Jesus they are sons and daughters who are pure and who are able to have fellowship with him. This morning all of us are called to trust in Jesus that we might know the purification of sins that only he can provide. And those of us who know that we are cleansed before God can have confidence before his throne. So Jesus has to wash you if you're going to be clean in the sight of God. And praise God through his death and resurrection. He does. Final thing then that we learned from the, the foot washing. Is that it's not simply a pointer to the cleansing that he needs to perform. It's also an example that we are called to follow. Uh, verse 13, Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Jesus says, I am the king, I am the Lord, I am the teacher, I am the son of God, all of that's true. Now, if that's true, and I'm exalted, I am Lord and teacher, and if I've washed your feet, you also have a duty to pick up the towel and scrub one another's feet clean. If that wasn't beneath my dignity to do, then it's not beneath your dignity to do. Pick up the towel and wash one another's feet. Serve one another humbly is the point. For I I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done uh, to you. His example here uh, is the pattern for us to follow and there is a duty and a responsibility to walk in the same way. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to walk with him? John 13. To follow Jesus means you pick up the towel and you scrub dirty feet. There is a summary of the Christian life in a nutshell. You actively serve others, inconvenience yourself for others, deny yourself for others so that they can be, their lives can be enhanced even as yours in some ways is depleted. You spend yourself for others. The characteristic Christian response is not, what am I getting out of this? What do I want? What's in it for me? The example that Jesus has shown us is how can I spend myself, my time, my money, my energy, my resources, so other people can have joy and have help and be blessed. To follow Jesus is to empty yourself for others and to humbly serve them. What this shows us is that we might say there are two aspects or two components to the Christian life. There's a vertical aspect. We are called to cultivate a rich devotional life with our Lord. We are called to spend time in his presence, praying, meditating on his word. Uh, We are called to delight in God and have generous amounts of time in his presence where our heart is set aflame by his presence and truth and we adore him. That's the vertical aspect of the Christian life. And without it, your life is impoverished. But equally, without the horizontal aspect, your life is impoverished. And the horizontal aspect is described here in chapter 13. To follow Jesus means that you're actively helping other people. You're looking for ways to meet needs, both physical and spiritual. You're pouring yourself out. And if you have just the the vertical, you have a truncated understanding of the Christian life. Or if you have just the horizontal, you have a truncated understanding. Which one do do you lean toward? I think it's a helpful question to ask and answer for yourself. Do you lean towards the vertical? You know, the pious withdrawal from the world to pray and contemplate? Or are you a doer? Get out there, do things. Both are good instincts. Both are biblical. But we we need to understand that both are essential. Communion with the Lord and a life of active service for others. Now, service begins where all righteousness begins, and that's the home. We are called in the first instance to be a servant at home towards the people around us, towards our spouses and our children. I attended a homeschooling convention once and there was a a speaker there who was exhorting fathers and husbands to love their wives well and and help them. Uh, And he gave a very practical suggestion. He said, go to her to-do list and take some of those things on her to-do list and put them on your to-do list. It's not a bad idea. I don't know if your wife has a to-do list or your husband has a to-do list, but whatever the equivalent of that is, figure out what they need to do. And burden your life and yourself so you can ease theirs. That's the Christian way. Make life hard for yourself so life can be easy for them. That's the pattern that Christ is showing us. Pick up the burden to lighten the shoulders uh, of someone else. And also we need, obviously, at at so many different levels, we need service in the church. Those who are willing and ready to wash the feet of their fellow believers. By the way, one basic way to do that at CBC, given where we currently are at our church, uh, if you're a member here, is to show up early and then to linger after the service. And when you see those new faces that perhaps aren't integrated into the community, you introduce yourself, you show them the love of Jesus, you introduce them around to other people, uh, and and you take an interest in those that uh, may not be well acquainted with the people at CBC. And it might be an inconvenience, you have to get here earlier, we have kids, I understand it's difficult. Lingering might uh, cause you to push back your lunch plans. That's one basic way to serve others, is just to be accessible and available after. Spend time in conversation with people, encourage people. Uh, Sundays are unique in that all of us are together. Well, mostly all of us, I understand there are multiple services. More on that later. Uh, March 6th is the member meeting. Um, uh, but, but one basic way to serve is to be present uh, and be around, get to know new people, introduce them to the life of the church. And then we're, we're called to consider how we might serve others in every sphere of life, how we can serve our coworkers, our neighbors, and so on. But that's the Christian pattern, disadvantaging ourselves for the advantage of others. Now, to live this way, we need what Jesus had, and that's humility. We can't ever look at something and say, I'm beyond that, I'm too big for that. We need to have a small view of ourselves and a big view of God and others. One indicator of humility is that you're willing to do tasks that are needed, but nobody really appreciates or recognizes or acknowledges or thanks you for. Basically, motherhood. Um, right? One of the ways you know that you're, you're serving uh, in a humble way is you're meeting a real need, but nobody thinks, in some ways, you're doing such a good job, nobody even thinks to thank you and acknowledge it. That's an expression of humility. Or, or doing things that you consider to be below your, what you're really capable of doing. You're capable of so much more, you're competent to, to do some, so much greater tasks, and yet, because there's a need, you freely do something that is below you, beneath you. Those are all marks of having a servant heart, of having humility. And then along with humility to serve people this way, we need self-denial, a willingness to say no to some of the things that we might want for ourselves, so we can meet the the needs of others. It's a beautiful example of this in the life of the great Saint Augustine, the great Christian theologian from the the 4th and 5th century. In uh, 388 AD, uh, Augustine established a monastic community in the city of Thagast. It was him and 10 other individuals who were going to pursue knowledge and truth in community. Uh, They were going to engage in conversation and pursue spiritual growth, uh, they were going to spend time in prayer, and they are going to sing psalms. That may not sound like the ideal life for you, but for a man with St. Augustine's interest, interest in study, interest in uh, community, that would have been a kind of idyllic life, a life of contemplation and reflection away from the cares of the world. That's the kind of community established. Now, in North Africa, where Augustine lived, there was a practice among various African churches of taking very capable individuals and pressing them into service. If the church had a need and there was a capable man there who could help, uh, those churches weren't above saying, you need to do this, you're going to do this, and just <laughs> coercing a person into ministry. Uh, now, Augustine knew this, and so he was wary of going to cities where they didn't have a bishop or some other minister. But Hippo did, the city of Hippo did, so he thought he's safe. So he goes to the city of Hippo, and he's there on Sunday morning with the people of God. And the bishop Valerius goes up to preach on Sunday. And he says, hey, look who we have with us today. It's St. Augustine. He had something of a reputation at this point of being a very uh, vigorous apologist for the Christian faith. Look who we have with us today. We have Augustine. And oh, the needs of this congregation. (laughs) Now, Valerius couldn't speak Latin very well. He was Greek, so there was that. And he had to go occasionally to Italy to a check up on the lands that his family owned. So they needed someone to come, out, come and help. Look at these needs. And oh, as it happens, Augustine's here. Well, the congregation barred Augustine from leaving. Uh, You're our man was the consensus. And with tears in his eyes, he accepted to be made a presbyter in that church. It was a very unwelcome turn of events. It's not what he had planned for himself. He thought he would enjoy... A serene life of contemplation with like-minded individuals, and instead he's going to have to get into the mess of helping people grow spiritually, the rigors of ministry. Instead of, you know, satisfying conversation about the meaning of Paul's epistles or whatever, he's going to tell people not to drink so much. He's going to mediate all kinds of disputes among people. Uh, he's he's going to give up the serene, uh, detached life of a scholar and contemplative, and he's going to do the work of a busy pastor. It's not what St. Augustine wanted, but it's what the church needed. It's what the people around him needed. It was what God called him to do. And so he willingly surrendered what he might have wanted out of life for the sake of serving people, for the sake of doing what Jesus called him to do. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. There might be things that you want for yourself, for your family, that you might have to say no to for the sake of being available to serve the people around you. It's well worth asking what that looks like for you. So what motivates this kind of humility and self-denial? We don't possess that in ourselves. What what empowers that? What drives it? Two things. Look at verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So notice that Jesus is not interested in having you just hear about the fact that service is a good idea. He doesn't want you just to agree with him that you should serve, he wants you to serve. He expects to be obeyed. So we need to consider very concretely and very specifically, where do I need to serve my family, my church, my community, my coworkers, better than I'm currently doing? Where specifically do I need to be less selfish and more selfless for the good of others around me? If you don't know, ask you know, your wife, husband, coworkers. Jesus is challenging us to think not just generally, oh, I want to be a servant, that's a good idea, but to think specifically and concretely for the sake of obeying him. Your homework this week is to look around, identify one need in your, it could be your family, church, whatever, co-worker, identify one need, big or small, and seek to meet that need. And Jesus pronounces a blessing on those who actually listen and obey. If you know these things, Blessed are you if you do them. The blessing of God and the blessing of Christ is upon those who actually not just agree with him, but obey him. Do you want to be under the blessing of Jesus? To experience his favor and delight? Then obey. It often happens that in the path of obedience and self-sacrifice, we discover unexpected joys and delights that we weren't anticipating. St. Augustine, for example, going back to Augustine. um, St. Augustine, his biographer tells us, through his pastoral duties, his pastoral duties turned him into a great man such as he would never have become had he remained a professor of rhetoric. All the masterpieces on which later centuries looked back were without exception, written during his busy life as a bishop. Now notice, notice how God likes to take things with the right hand and then give it back with the left. Uh, Augustine's literary aspirations weren't finally thwarted by being a bishop, but indeed were enhanced uh, as a result of you know, his work as a pastor. So in, the point is this, in serving others, in laying down our life for others, we discover unexpected blessings. And we see how God brings about perhaps even the desires of our hearts in ways that we didn't anticipate when he's taking us through this path of service. As Proverbs 11.25 says, "'Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, "'and one who waters will himself be watered.'" Those who serve will experience the blessing of God. There's one powerful motivation to serve, we experience the blessing of Jesus. But the more ultimate and more fundamental reason is that that's how Jesus served us. Verse 14 doesn't simply explain to us that we have a moral obligation to follow Jesus' example. It also provides the motivation to serve others. If If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. If I picked up the towel and the water and scrubbed feet, you do the same. And understand that I did that for you supremely at the cross. The the foot washing is, is intended to give us a frame of reference to understand what Jesus is doing at the cross. And he wants us to conceive of his cross work as the act of a servant. When Jesus was crucified, he died the death of a common criminal. Jews in his day would have viewed him as cursed because of his mode of death. His love for us went all the way down. In a profound sense, he picked up the towel and he scrubbed our feet clean. He served us. That's how he loved us. And recognizing that, we ought also to turn in love and service to our brothers and sisters. This is the highest motivation we can have for serving other people. Jesus served you and he served me. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us, your children, to more deeply experience your love for us and find comfort in your love. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you did not withhold anything, any good thing that might result in our salvation, but freely yielded your life to God that we might be cleansed. Lord, we love you. We pray that your example would shape us and cause us to live like you did more and more for your glory.